Hello, my name is Michael McLaren, and welcome to COVID Matters. In this episode, myself and Cheryl were delighted to discuss these four walls. It's a short film giving voice to all those who've been bereaved during the COVID-19 pandemic. For this, we were joined by Dr. Lucy Salmon from the University of Bristol. She's Good Grief's founding director and these four walls co-principal investigator. We also spoke to Dr. Emily Harrop from Cardiff University, who is also a co-principal investigator and who we've spoken to for this podcast previously. Also in the conversation was Ellie Harrison. She's the creator of the Grief series and the writer and director of These Four Walls. I hope you enjoy our chat. I'll be back afterwards with more information about both These Four Walls and COVID aid. Just to begin with, please, can you tell us a bit more about your working background? Um, so uh, my name is Lucy Salmon. I'm an associate professor at the University of Bristol and I'm a social scientist. So I um, I don't work clinically, but I've been doing work in palliative and end of life care since about 2004. Um, and I have a particular interest in, in grief and bereavement, but also people's experiences of living with serious illness, um, communication about treatment decision making and those kind of wider issues around um, living with and caring for people with serious illness. So my name's um, Emily Harrop and I'm a research fellow at Cardiff University Um, and similar to Lucy really I'm a a social scientist by background and have been working in the field of palliative care since 2011 Um, yeah looking again at people's experience of living with advanced disease um, and increasingly in the last few years around around grief and bereavement that's where my work's come to focus um, and all the more so during the COVID pandemic where I teamed up with Lucy and we've been working together on this study which we'll be talking more about today. I'm Ellie Harrison and I'm an artist and since 2010 I've been making projects co-authored with communities to open up spaces to talk about grief and bereavement and end of life. So sometimes that looks like photography projects where we take portraits of people from seven years old to 85 years old. And sometimes it looks like a fun fair about anger called the unfair, which pops up in town squares and parks. So, um, yeah, and during COVID, I ended up doing a lot of grassroots signposting. So people were ringing me at 6am saying, what are the funeral restrictions in Stockport? Or I've been told this about my mother's funeral, is that true? So it was a lot of making 10 phone calls. So they only had to make one, really. Uh, So very kind of grassroots and activist, I suppose. So it's great to have the three of you with us today. What we will be talking about is These Four Walls, which, of course, a short film written and directed by Ellie, who's with us today. Um, And the research behind that was conducted by Lucy and Emily. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about that research and what the study was aiming to uncover. Our study was looking at people's bereavement experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic. It involved a survey of um, people who were bereaved at this time and also some interviews with people bereaved at this time. Um, And the aims of the survey were really just to try and understand a lot more about these kind of unusual conditions in which people were finding themselves in when when they lost, um, lost relatives and friends during the pandemic. Um, So we looked at people's experiences at the end of life, um, people's experiences of funerals, of the support that they needed and perhaps weren't getting. And yeah, the idea behind it being really to try and come up with some practical recommendations and suggestions for trying to improve um, the care and support available to people at this this time. 
And this was a national study, am I right to say that? Yes, it was a UK-wide study. Yes, so it was um, the, open to anyone who had experienced a bereavement in the UK during the pandemic. So were there any overarching themes that you found um, as a result of your findings in this study? So I'll chip in here, it's um, Lucy. So overall, I think the findings from the study really highlight the exceptional challenges of bereavement during the pandemic. And our research was focused in particular on that first sort of year, well, from March 2020 up until the end of 2020. So people were having to cope with um, lockdowns, restrictions to funerals, like Ellie mentioned. Um, And also, I think what really came through was um, how these restrictions impacted on people's ability to say goodbye to their loved one and spend time with them after the death and then give them the send off that they would have wanted in terms of a funeral. Um, And then after that, people ended up suffering, I think, because of the way their social support network, which they would usually rely on to their friends and family, which is not accessible um, in the way that they usually would have been. Um, And that had real knock on effects in terms of their experiences of grief um, and their experiences of bereavement and being able to cope with their bereavement later on. So people talked about feeling um, that the the bereavement was almost unreal, like they couldn't really make sense of it in their lives and they were unable to sort of integrate it. Um, I don't think you ever really move on from a bereavement, but as time goes on, people usually have the well, the opportunity, but also they have to go through that kind of um, social aspect of integrating it into their lives, of seeing people for the first time, of going into work and all of those things, which maybe we take for granted. Um, And during the pandemic, everything sort of was on hold for a lot of people. So I think that was one thing that came through, wasn't Emily? Above everything else, it just highlighted just how how challenging it had been in kind of all aspects of grief and bereavement really from right through from the end of life through to trying to access services that people would find to help them as they were coming to terms with their with their grief and definitely having a pause on ceremonies it, it kind of halts the closure that people can have when it comes to dealing with a death or a bereavement in the family or even friends being able to say goodbye to a loved one um or a friend So did any of these findings surprise you? Um, I suppose I can ask each of you uh, to respond to this, Ellie as well, because of your work with grief and bereavement. Did any of the results surprise you in the end? I don't think the research findings surprise me necessarily because in my work, so much of it is about helping people make meaning. And in my case, we do that through art, but it's also about having communal spaces to bear witness. So in some ways it wasn't surprising because I really was acutely aware of the loss that people would be feeling in not being able to mourn and and mark those transition points. Um, I think what I did find surprising was just the wealth of research and how rigorous and nuanced the research was. Um, They yeah, Lucy and Emily spoke to over 700 people and that's, it was a quite a challenge as an artist. How do you bear witness to so many stories and such, um, and how do you communicate such beautifully nuanced research in a visual language? Um, yeah, it was, it was um, I felt very honoured to be invited to do that, but also really, really tough brief. 
Um, I think from my perspective, what really came through, perhaps it's not surprising, but what really struck me was the high levels of need for emotional support and the sort of the psychological difficulties of what people were going through. So although there were sort of practical challenges around kind of death administration and organising things and trying to work out what the rules were and things like that, um, and people did have some needs for support around those kind of issues, what really came through was this just the huge sort of trauma that people had gone through really and how traumatic a lot of the end of life care experiences were um, and just how difficult it was for people. For example, we had people talking about how um, they feared or knew that they had actually given the person who died COVID and um, then the person had ended up having to be admitted to, to hospital and their loved one died there and they weren't able to be with them. So that person then may have ended up at home on their own having to isolate or quarantine because they had COVID themselves without any social support. And they're on top of that, they're dealing with this really traumatic experience of saying goodbye to somebody then got taken off in an ambulance um, and the guilt associated with the fact that they may have given them COVID. And I think those kind of challenges were just really unique. Um, and we saw that kind of play out in our in our um, both our survey data and then the in-depth kind of qualitative data we collected as well. And then I think the other thing which really struck me was just how difficult it was for people to get support, like professional support, um, whether it was from uh, mental health services or from bereavement um, charities or, or GPs. So people really struggled to, to be seen and to get the kind of support that they wanted often. So people did have a need for and, and wanted to have face-to-face -face support, for example, sometimes. And obviously that wasn't possible. Um, you know, people could perhaps get online support or telephone support, but that wasn't necessarily what people needed. And people also tended to uh, feel that the experiences they'd had of being bereaved during the pandemic weren't necessarily understood by other people, including their friends and family. Um, and so that there seemed to be quite a lot of division and isolation that was coming through in people's accounts. And in terms of these four walls, uh, why do you think it was important to translate this research into a short film? I mean, I think it's um, important doing when you, I mean, doing any research, really, that you try and convey your findings in different ways. I think traditionally researchers have written academic papers and kind of left it there. And I think increasingly now there is, you know, it's a, there's, it's quite well recognised that it's really important to, you know, feedback what you're finding to lots of different audiences, including, you know, the public and, and also people who take part in the research. So I think on one level, you know, it's, you know, um, creating things like films is a really good way of doing that. But I think it was also really important to really, you know, part one of the aims of this study was to really document what people have been through. Um, so as well as being able to, you know, understand more about experiences, it was just, you know, bearing witness to it and really um, being able to explain to split, get the messages out around what people had actually been through during the pandemic. This seemed really important. And a lot of the um, themes that we were picking up in the research and some of the other sort of feedback that we've been getting from when we've been talking about this stuff was that people people felt quite abandoned. Um, they, they felt poorly understood. They felt they weren't really understood what they were going through. So it seemed really quite important to try and um, you know give give that give that voice to their experiences through through a film. Um, I don't know if you want to say more about that, Lucy or Welly. Yeah, I think. I think that's true. I think our motivation was, you know, one of our main motivations was to try and convey what people had been through um, so that 
you know, those family and friends that I mentioned, you know, not everyone will understand. Not everyone has a, a network who would necessarily understand what it's been like to be bereaved. So it was partly to kind of raise public awareness of that, but also I think kind of clinical awareness and awareness um, among counsellors as well of just what people have been coping with. Um, you know, some of the reporting in the media has been quite sensationalist and that's not always helpful. So as Ellie said, you know, in our research, we were really keen to give voice to the diversity of experiences and also the nuances in people's experiences and maybe give a few pointers of what, um, you know, what people can do to help, whether you're um, supporting someone because you're a friend or a family member of someone who's been bereaved or, or if you're a professional who's trying to support um, people who've been bereaved at this time. And I, I suppose from my perspective, I, I made the film with an artist and videographer called Matt Rogers, and we were thinking about how do we communicate both the scale of um, the findings, but also make each story feel individual. Because, you know, when you see a number, it can sometimes be difficult to engage with the individual story. So we were thinking, how do we communicate what people had for breakfast, the way that they dressed, the way that they were in life, um, and what incredible loss was experienced by their friends and family? Actually, although I said that I wasn't <laughs> hugely surprised by the findings, one of the things that came out was that people felt they weren't entitled to support they were like oh I'm not sure whether I I really deserve it or other people have it worse and that I really sort of felt that on a human level and wanted to offer permission so I hope if uh, if the film is trying to achieve anything it's to offer permission to bereaved to feel and to know that they're not on their own and that it's um that there's been so many people going through this and one of the things, actually, I think Emily and I, you know, when we talked about, um, you know, having a commissioning a film was we both felt really strongly that the person who made the film needed to really understand deeply what grief was and is. And so we approached Ellie for that reason, because we knew that, you know, she'd explored grief and loss a lot in her work previously. And it is a sensitive area and you want to do justice to those um, stories that people have, have shared with you. Um, so we really appreciate that, you know, the way that the grief series kind of approach the the, um, the brief and, and respectfully, you know, represented our accounts um, in an artistic way, which we hope is accessible um, to people as well. Yeah. And, and I suppose art can be a wonderful emotional accessibility ramp into difficult topics. And when we're dealing with trauma, sometimes things are beyond words and so finding a visual language to communicate that research felt really important. And I think tonally as well the the short film isn't fear-mongering it isn't a, a devastating picture the the message it conveys and the findings of the research are hard-hitting but the tone of the film gives it an accessible informative um, feel rather than anything that you know make someone feel that their experience was maybe less than someone else's. It's just, this is the overall picture. The imagery of the biscuits as well, it's a very calm, and I'm not sure how else to describe it, but I just find the tone of it really conveys that message in a way that everyone can watch this and relate to it, like you say, in a kind of unique experience of grief that we all went through. I suppose mine and Matt's hope with the film was that really great art comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. 
And so there was a sense of wanting to comfort people that had been bereaved, but also draw attention to people that maybe had privilege that they could wield more responsibly. I love that. I love that uh, idea, Ellie. Um, beautifully phrased. And I think, um, you know, when I saw the film for the first time, one thing that struck me is its pace as well, that it's quite slow and it kind of builds. It's not, um, you know, so often we're kind of bombarded these days with kind of very fast, kind of loud, short um, clips and films. And I think um, I really like that, that it's slow. I think it makes you stay with what you're feeling. And it makes you really listen, especially with the different actors kind of voices reading out. Those are direct quotes from, you know, from our research. I think that's really powerful. So let's kind of dive into the themes that are discussed in the film and the research. And one of them we've kind of touched on already is about the issue of time and people feeling that the more time went on, they were somewhat less eligible or maybe could access less support in dealing with that grief that they'd experienced during the pandemic. Um, I wondered maybe, Emily, if you could let us know your thoughts on how we could address or change those attitudes towards time and loss. Yeah, I mean, I think time's really interesting and it's, there's, there's I mean, I don't think there's, it really varies by ind individual people and grief is such an individual thing. And similarly, when people need support is a very individual thing and, I think some people will feel that they needed it much earlier on and then we'd find that other people felt that maybe they accessed it too soon and that and it was they weren't actually in that place yet. Um I think there's a lot of assumptions kind of made at the moment in bereavement support and when people should be able to access it but there's not really much evidence for when is the right time and probably there isn't a right time because everyone is different and it's really important I think that people are able to get the sports at the time that's right for them and to be able to sort of revisit it when they need to because it's not I think there's this misperception that you know grief can be a staged process and you move through the stages and you don't go back and I think that's you know it's largely recognized that that's not really the case that you know people you know may need it at one point and then Sort of carry on for a bit and then something might happen they may feel they need to go back to get, get getting some more support at a, at a later time point so um I think you know that was came out in our survey that people's needs for support at different times were actually very different and um you're right in the film there was a um a story from one of the um people who took part who felt that too much time had passed um for them to be able to um go and seek support um, but then, you know, we would also hear from people that have been trying to get support and were being told that they needed to wait at least six months before they would be eligible for support. So it's a really mixed picture. Um, and I think the main message around it is it's a really individual, a really individual experience um, and services need to be able to respond to that, really. And so it, it kind of leads on to an idea of disrupted grieving. Um, which is this kind of sense of you're trying to deal with the loss of a loved one, but because of the different restrictions in place um, in terms of the ceremonies and gathering people, it, it kind of didn't provide the closure that was needed for people to deal with those losses. So I just wondered in terms of your professional opinions or your experiences with grief, do you think it's a good idea for those people at home who might be listening to this episode to kind of revisit those ceremonies now that time has passed 
or would that in fact bring up some um, uncomfortable feelings and delay the grief? I think that it really depends on the individual. Um, I would think that for most people it is helpful to have a sort of meaningful ceremony when you're able to or some kind of memorial or public kind of recognition partly because it's an opportunity for, to bring um, everyone who knew that person together and that provides a real sense of support for the person who, who's been bereaved but I know Ellie does a lot of work in this area so I'm sure you can probably say something interesting about this Ellie. And I suppose I mean in my lived experience grief is tidal so it doesn't stay still it's constantly changing moving evolving and um, and so the more you can allow yourself to be in flow with that grief rather than trying to wrestle it into some sort of order um the the easier it is and so yeah of course using art or finding ritual it can be really really helpful for people um, and I think we can think quite broadly in terms of what those rituals or memorials or celebrations might look like. So, for example, we've done projects where we give people seed paper. So it's paper that has wildflower seeds in it and they write messages and then everyone goes on a walk and they they plant the seed paper or. Um, yeah, we've done various kind of memory workshops where people can take items of clothing from loved ones and everyone sits and sews and creates new objects um, and really I think it's about having time and space to bear witness and to be able to find spaces where we can say the unsayable and I hope the film sort of begins to open up that space or prompts that space allows permission for that space and it's interesting how these questions of time and also kind of ritual and kind of revisiting past losses, how they really do reveal and tap into our sort of social attitudes to grief and our some of those misperceptions that Emily mentioned as well about what grief looks like and what it feels like. And, you know, this idea of grief being something you move through or it having stages or there being a time in which you get over grief. The reality is actually much more um complicated and individual and you know what helps one person may not help another person and I think that's one reason why it's so important that we have these conversations and we kind of bring grief and bereavement out into the open to sort of actually question and confront and and start dismantling some of those sometimes quite unhelpful beliefs which we have about our own grief and other people's grief and we saw that reflected in our data in in terms of um you know people's thinking that they're not entitled or too much time's passed I don't want to bother my friends and family you know people think I should be over it by now and there's quite unhelpful um social attitudes I hope that by having these kind of conversations we can um, sort of start to shift those I absolutely agree I think one of the things we found in um, our coverage of the National Day of Reflection this year was about the importance of just having time and having that space for people to come together communities or across the nation just to have that moment to think about the two years that we have gone through and the large-scale losses we've gone through um, as well as things like national memorials the wall down in London. We've recently opened up the um, COVID memorial in Scotland as well. So it's, again, just permission for people to come and grieve together or alone to commemorate those losses. 
Um, so what response have you had um, from organisations or the public um, in response to this film? So we first screened the film um, during um, Dying Matters Week as part of a film series um, put on by the um, Good Grief Festival. And yeah, I think in some ways I was a little bit anxious about screening the film because it's it is such a you know it's such a sensitive topic and, and we had also invited um our, our participants um to come and watch the film as well which made it even more um in some ways a little sort of nerve-wracking in a way to make because they to make sure that we kind of depicted their experiences in the right way um but what was really nice was the way that the good we fest and lucy can talk a lot more about this is people leave leave their comments in the chat so we were you know as the film was running we were seeing all the people all the people's views on the film as it was being displayed and throughout the session where we we're talking about it afterwards and and the feedback that we had was was really positive that people found it although you know it was a really sad you know it was a sad film in a way and a lot of people were obviously affected by it they found it um, helpful to see these experiences um, displayed in this way and they thought it'd be done very sensitively um, it was very poignant um, so just seeing the feedback from people who'd, who'd been through through these experiences and finding hearing that they found it a useful and helpful film was that was what mattered the most to me really was just getting that instant feedback that um, that, that it had been you know helpful in that way way to them um, in terms of organisations, I don't know if you have you had much feedback from um, organisations, um, see or um, to be honest, we um, haven't really we haven't really haven't, been no. pushing it to organisations yet. And um, we're getting a, a shorter version of the film made, which I think will be um, a nice thing to you know to share with organisations for and for people to share on social media. But that's not quite finished yet. Um, but yeah, I think I would just echo what what Emily was saying really that we did have a degree of trepidation. And launching the film but um we've had some really yeah really positive feedback and we're also collect we're, we're carrying on collecting data so we've got an extension um some funding to extend our survey to go beyond the initial time period so we're doing kind of 24 month follow-ups and um we had some feedback last week didn't we Emily from one of the research participants saying that she'd come along and she'd watch the film and she just gave some really um positive feedback in terms of people feeling like it did reflect their experiences but it did so in a sort of sensitive way um and yeah people also appreciating that we were trying to um disseminate the findings of the research not just to academic communities through research papers and presentations but actually we were trying to um yeah reach the public and and raise as much awareness as we can really about what people have been through i suppose that i i shared that trepidation um, I'm a multidisciplinary artist, so I work in performance and visual art, and film is relatively new to me. It's a, my second film project that I worked on, and so I was definitely feeling the nerves. Um, but what was really heartening was how generous all of the people at the screening were. So the chat, it really did open up conversations. The, the chat was going crazy with people saying this reflects my experience or thank you for making the film and so it really was a very very beautiful to have such a generous audience there and to know that there were people in the audience that had um, been the research participants and um, because we were really keen to honor people's stories as authentically as possible 
Um, and subsequently, I've had lots of lovely feedback from organizations. Leeds, is, um, where I'm based, is really fantastic and it has a kind of very active death positive community. So I've had lots of nice feedback there. Um, yeah, which is a huge relief because it's an important subject and the research is so beautiful. It's important to honor it. I was just going to say, Cheryl, um, I just wonder if it's helpful to talk a little bit about Good Grief. Um, so Good Grief Festival was an online festival which we launched in October 2020. And we ran online um, in October 2020 and then twice in March and uh, for the Day of Reflection in, in March 2021 and then in October 2021. Um, and yeah, just to, to echo what Ellie was saying, so one of the most rewarding aspects of Good Grief and of being present at the events and and um, helping to curate it and direct it has been seeing that chat and the kind of community that builds up alongside the events. Um, I was worried with it being an online festival and running online events that we would lose that sense of community and people kind of chatting. But actually, I think the opposite's happened. Actually, it's it's been really easy for people to access the festival. We've reached people who maybe wouldn't have been able to travel or, or, or come to an in-person event. Um, and I think we saw that in the film screenings that there's, there's a really nice community of people who've built up um, around good grief and, and almost all of them have experienced a bereavement in the last sort of um, five years or so. Uh, and yeah, people say that it really, really helps them to, to kind of come together and, and hear people talking about grief in a, in a sort of open way. Um, and they're able to sort of recognize their own experiences and, and um, take solace in in that in the, in the fact that we're all in this together and um, so if anyone wants to access the film and watch it you can watch it for free on the good grief festival website and it's goodgrieffest.com so what outcomes would you like to see as a result of both the research and the short film there's outcomes from the research i mean we've been kind of making recommendations really as we've been delivering the you know disseminating our research bindings I mean, and the sort of main recommendations have been around trying to improve people's experiences at the end of life and making sure that, um, that the communication that they have with, with healthcare professionals at the end of life is, um, is as good as it can be and that people are able to have as much contact in pandemic situations, people are able to have as much contact with their friends and family as, you know, as they can in that situation. Um, but also, um, you know, going moving from the end of life, going through people's bereavement, that they're able to then also access the support that they need from from services, um, and you know, more broadly speaking, just that as a society, that we're able to become a bit better at um, how we talk to to people who are experiencing grief and bereavement, um, and yeah, through through sort of different initiatives, really. Um, through sort of educational initiatives, through sort of awareness initiatives, um, through you know events like the Good Grief Festival are really important. Um, yeah, so there's sort of, the, sort of different levels of, um, sort of sort of outcomes that we'd like to see from the research. Um, and there's been some really um, exciting kind of policy initiatives going on at the moment as well. Really trying to you know work with research findings and sort of other evidence that's available. Myself and Lucy are both part of the UK Commission on Bereavement, um, which will be um, releasing its report in September, with along with um, sort of recommendations for policymakers and decision makers to try and really improve um, the bereavement experiences of. Of people across a whole series of domains from end of life from funerals 
um, movement support availability community responses. Um, so that's kind of one of the main ways we've been engaging with our research and trying to make sure that our research findings are kind of yeah, have, have an impact. one of the things that um, I feel quite passionately about is that support is varied and it can be uh, tailored to different communities and made by different communities for different communities. So um, in particular, it's really important that we have bereavement services that are uh, run and organised and tailored for black communities and queer communities um, and that bereavement support doesn't become homogenous that it, there is space for it to be tailored to different people's needs and lived experiences and that communities feel empowered by that support, um, which is happening more and more. Just building on what Ellie said, another um, dimension to our research study was uh, an online survey and some in-depth interviews we did with bereavement services, um, where we explore the impact of the pandemic on bereavement services, but also other um, yeah, we gathered other information about how bereavement services operate. Um, and one of the interesting findings and perhaps quite shocking findings there is that for over two thirds of the voluntary community sector bereavement services we surveyed, um, there were known inequities who, know, who accesses their support. So they said that they knew there were community groups um, who have unmet needs for bereavement support in their local area or in their catchment area who are not currently accessing their services. So I think Ellie touches on a really important issue um, moving forward. There needs to be recognition of the barriers that people face in terms of accessing care and support, both in end of life care and in, in bereavement services. Um, and we found some, you know, some of our findings were quite shocking in terms of, um, you know, the, the barriers that people face. So we found that uh, more than one in four people in our survey felt uncomfortable asking for support from services. Um, and on top of that, around 40% reported difficulties in getting support from friends and family. So people are struggling and they do feel they need support and they do feel um, alone. So I think that is going to be a really important area. Um, and bereavement services can't do that on their own. They also need um, investment um, and support in order to extend their services and provide the diversity of services which are really needed to meet people's needs. Um, and then there was some really kind of in a way, low-hanging fruit in that we found that, for example, only um, a third of our participants had been given um, information about where to go for bereavement support after the death, which is incredibly low. Um, and, you know, if people don't, if they don't, if they're not even given information about what bereavement support is out there, that's not going to make them feel, you know, comfortable um, looking it up and, and finding out for themselves, especially when, you know, when you're grieving you know, it, it's it's really hard work and it's really exhausting grief. So to kind of have that have that additional um, uh, asked, you know, that you have to be the proactive one, it is really difficult. So I think, um, yeah, we need to think more creatively and more inclusively about how we advertise services, how we raise awareness of what services are out there, and also how we try and make people feel that they're entitled to support um, and that. You know if they want support they're able to access the kind of support they need and certainly i mean i'm aware I, I live in a really fantastic area in leeds called chapel town and there was a lot of um a lot of people that are kind of community ambassadors i guess 
or people that that share knowledge or share support services and we saw the African community being incredibly inventive and resilient about how they could retain their funeral traditions whilst maintaining social distancing. So we ended up with these very long funeral processions where everyone stood outside their homes and bore witness to um, the people that have passed. And I, I, that was a really beautiful thing to see that was happening organically at grassroots level. So I think the more community ambassadors we can have to kind of bridge that gap between the amazing services that are available and the general public, um, yeah, the more useful it will be. Do you believe that we will now be better equipped to deal with a kind of large scale global crisis um, with losses of the numbers we experienced in the pandemic as a result of the learnings from this study? I would hope that, um, you know, our research and the research that many other people have done on on kind of uh, end of life care experiences and bereavement during the pandemic um, would provide, you know, a strong evidence base if anything like this ever happens again. Um, you know, I, I suppose my kind of caveat on that is that I think our society is quite divided. And I think COVID in many ways has shown that, um, that, you know, people have very different views about what the best sort of public health measures were, for example. Uh, and I'm not sure if this happened again, you know, whether that division would go away or whether we'd see, you know, a reenactment of many of, of the debates and divisions which we've seen during the pandemic. Um, but in terms of bereaved people, I hope that, um, our research would provide guidance for services on on how to best support bereaved people. I think there are definitely some sort of clear messages around preparedness, you know, for future. If there were, you know, if there was, we have in an unfortunate position to have a similar thing happen again. Um, I think the research really highlighted the sort of, you know, the really awful consequences of the sort of lack of prepare, preparedness um, and ability, especially of like health systems to respond to people in hospitals at that time. Um, you know, not having enough PPE, not having clear policies, um, um, not, you know, being able to connect families properly. I think that, you know, there's, there are, there's sort of clear learning there that you would hope if, you know, it happened again, would could be acted on to just to stop so much of the trauma that happened when people experienced the death. Um, but then, yeah, also... Um, I think, you know, there's been a lot of adaptations that have been made anyway as, you know, services, you know, funeral services, bereavement services, health services have had to adapt and move to online provision and find different ways of dealing with um, dealing with all of the restrictions and infection control measures. Um, so I think, you know, that learning is going to stay. And, and, I, and I don't think it, the way services delivered is ever going to fully go back to how it was. I think, you know, certainly for bereavement services and probably other other types of services you know hybrid ways of working are probably going to be here to stay um which will yeah obviously mean if if anything similar happens in the future that that transition is going to be that much easier than it was back in March 2020 when it was just a completely new unprecedented sort of set of territory to negotiate so I wondered if you might have a message for anyone at home who's listening to this episode of the podcast. They've perhaps experienced grief during the pandemic and are still going through kind of that process, or they know of someone who could do with some bereavement support. What message would you give to these people? I suppose fundamentally, first of all, I'm just so sorry that you went through that experience. I think it's been incredibly tough. Um, 
you know, bereavement is challenging enough without all of the other challenges which have come along um, because of the pandemic. I think please be kind to yourself and give yourself permission to uh, need support. And please do feel entitled to support because that's you know what it's there for. Um, there's really good resources on like Cruise Bereavement Support website and also on the Good Grief Festival website. We have a resources page. Grief grief can go on for a very long time. And as, as Ellie said, it has waves and will come and go. And we're all entitled to struggle with that sometimes. Um, and yeah, and if you're supporting someone who's been bereaved, you know, just to just to be there and to be the person who will sit with them when they're when they're crying or when they just need to be distracted from what's going on and they need a laugh or whatever it is, is normal. And, um, you know, just try to be the person who who stays present and who is able to be with that, whatever it looks like for that person at that time. Absolutely. I suppose it was making me think that it's it's not too late for people to speak their truth. And I think we need some radical gentleness. And I think we need that with ourselves to let us feel things that we might have been silencing and also to be radically gentle with each other and give things time and breathing space. But it's certainly not too late to express those feelings or um, mark those rites of passage or those losses. Emily, any final notes? Only really to, you know, to echo what Lucy and Ellie, Ellie have said. So, and I, I think just really to reiterate that, you know, doesn't really matter so where you are in terms of your kind of trajectory following the bereavement that, you know, is it's it's not too late to try and get support if you feel like you need support, if you feel like you need, um, you know, to spend some time, remem- you know, remembering or, um, you know, remembering the person and talking with friends and family that, um, that yeah, it's just to have that, to have that space and to, be able to get the help that you need if, if you feel that you need still need the help. And as much as we keep talking about it, hopefully it will help to guide people or point them in the right direction if they are looking for support for either themselves or a loved one. Um, so I will be sure to leave all of the links in the show notes. Um, for anyone who's looking to find you, can you share maybe websites or social media? Yeah, so we have... Um... We have a website for my body of work, the Grief Series, and you can find that at griefseries.co.uk. And we also have um, a pack on our toolkit page, which gives you creative prompts if you want to remember somebody. So that's a free kit that people can go to if they want to engage creativity in remembering something they've lost. And I already gave the website for the Good Grief Festival. That's um, goodgrieffest.com. And via the Good Grief Festival website, you can access the Grief Channel, which is an online portal of all of our recorded um, online events from the last um, few years. Uh, And that's £20 to access for a year. And so, yeah, if if you think that'd be helpful to you, you please take a look and and maybe sign up and you can watch it in your own time. Um, And you can also join our mailing list uh, on the website as well and be notified of upcoming events. And all of our events are free um, when they're live. And then we put them on the grief channel afterwards. Um, And I'm also on Twitter. So at Lucy underscore Salmon. um, And I generally post about research. (laughs) So if you're interested in in research in this area, then um, please follow me.
Yeah, and just to say that um, you, the study website also has um, links to bereavement sources, bereavement support, and it contains you know links to podcasts, to media, um, you know media articles, to the papers that when we when we um, release um, papers, we put them up there, and various other bits and pieces linked to the project. And that's quite an easy website to remember. It's um, www.coverbereavement.com. So. Um, for people interested in you know all of the other kind of outputs relating to the research that's a good place to look as well thanks so much to lucy emily and ellie for their time we've put a link in the description to where you can find and watch these for walls over at goodgrieffest.com that is goodgrieffest.com you can also find the research at covidbereavement.com if you haven't heard of us COVID-Aid is the UK's national charity dedicated to supporting all those significantly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We provide a range of supported services, advice and information, including hosting our COVID-Aid support community, where we host courses, events, expert Q&As, peer support groups and a whole lot more for those affected by issues such as long COVID and grief and bereavement. Please visit covidaidcharity.org, that is covidaidcharity.org, and you can join our community at community.com. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with you soon.